All right, I'm here today with Dr. Keith Smith. He's one of the founders of the Surgery Center of Oklahoma. Am I saying that right? Because I think you guys changed your name at one point. Is that? Nope. Okay. Okay, good. I got it right. Um, You guys have an amazing story. So you st- I don't know when you actually got started, but I believe it was 2009 when you started putting your prices up on your website. You would actually put prices for surgical p- procedures up on the website, which nobody else does. And um, which when you think about it is, is kind of nuts. Um, Reason did a video about you guys a while ago, and I'm going to link to that in the show notes, but I just wanted to run over and I apologize. My cat is on my desk, knocking things over, but um, I just wanted to mention a couple things from that video because it's, it's kind of astounding um, what you guys have created and, and sort of the difference between what you do and what most hospitals do. So there was one patient, they, they talk about one patient who goes in for carpal tunnel surgery and they just looked at the costs at your surgery center. The cost was $2,750. This was back in 2012. Um, at a nearby hospital, Integris Baptist Hospital, the total bill would have been 7,452 and the out-of-pocket would have been 5,299. So that's, that's huge already. But then they go on to talk about administrative costs and how, you know, this other nearby hospital has like 18 administrators making on average, like $400,000 a year each. And the, the, another surgeon who, who works at both hospitals said, yeah, you know, I, I do, because I'm not saddled with all this other bureaucratic stuff, I get to do at the surgery center twice as many surgical procedures per day as at this other hospital. So the difference is kind of staggering. Um, What is it that you guys, is this just because you posted your prices? No, there's what's, what is it that you guys are doing differently? Well, it's, uh, it it was our philosophy from the very beginning. Uh, We, we knew that, for instance, dealing with the federal government in any way, uh, any form whatsoever would just mean that we were embracing inefficiencies uh, that we could not overcome. And, and we've always saw the customer and the patient as sovereign. And so, you know, just, it's the golden rule. I mean, in the patient's shoes, what do you want? I mean, you want, you don't want your time wasted. Uh, you want to feel like, you know, you're, you're a real patient, a real buyer, a real customer, uh, treated with at least as much respect as you would think someone uh, would be treated in a restaurant. So um, we just put ourselves in the patient's shoes and and that it's the golden rule. Basically, we thought if we were patients, how would we want to be treated? And so we decided we were going to run an efficient operation uh, and we were going to be honest with patients about about what they were going to pay. And that that's sort of the, the white elephant in the room uh, whenever a patient's facing a medical procedure and they have any kind of sticker shock at all, uh, but most physicians are um, impossibly uh, equipped to have that discussion. And so it's very scary for medical personnel to have a conversation with patients about money we did that for a long time. Uh, and then we just decided, you know, we're just going to post these prices online. Um, so 
we're we are very efficient, and we're efficient partly because we've rejected much of what the medical cartel and the big hospital systems have embraced. Uh, we've rejected electronic medical records, for instance. Those those really slow things down. And you know, if I'm talking to a physician, I don't really want them staring 180 degrees away from me at a computer screen and typing, or worse, um, have a scribe following them around typing for them uh, that's in the exam room. So um, we just decided we we were not going to use electronic medical records. That's not uh, a decision that many can make because they accept federal money. And if you accept federal money and you don't use electronic medical records, they pay physicians even less uh, than what they pay them now. So that that's one reason I think we're more efficient. Um, and we also didn't, we're not greedy. You know, we didn't want to make so much money that we could buy physician practices or that we could buy out our competitors or buy billboards, uh, buy advertisement during the Super Bowl. Um, it takes a lot of money and a lot of um, revenue and profit uh, to engage in those activities. And so we just decided we're, we're going to take care of patients and we're going to figure out how much does it actually cost to do that uh, in the best way possible at a small margin uh, so we have some wiggle room and, and do what we want to do, which is be doctors and take care of patients uh, and not not do all the other silly stuff that I'm, I'm afraid does not um, does not contribute to good patient care. What about insurance? Do you do you deal with insurance at all, or do you accept insurance? No, uh, we do not. We when we first started in 1997, uh, we filed insurance claims um, out of network. Uh, none of the insurance companies would work with us, uh, and they still don't want to. Um, and when I was young and foolish, I tell people I sought those crazy relationships that were unhealthy. And now that I'm older and wiser, I know it's best not to deal with the insurance companies why, at all. Why did they not want to work with you? Just because you were out of network or because of the way you operate? Well, they, they didn't want to and they still don't want to. Um, and and that was all revealed to us only after we posted our prices online. Uh, oh. it, never made, it never made sense to us because we thought, well, we're cheaper, we're better. I mean, our reputation in the city, uh, in Oklahoma City, and this surrounding area is, is just wonderful. Uh, and I mean, we took care of all the Division One athletes. Dr. Lantier and I are both fellowship trained in pediatric anesthesia and had anesthetized a lot of children. And, and the children of real, you know, decision makers, you know, policymakers, um, you know, people who own big businesses, we, we anesthetized all of their children. So we had a great reputation. And we, we just scratched our heads. We thought, you know, we're, we're cheaper and better. Why isn't there a line out the door? There should have been. And you think insurance companies collect premiums and they pay claims and they keep the difference and they make a lot of money. And why don't they love us? And it just didn't make any sense. And once we posted our prices online, it began to make sense uh, because the short reason and the short answer is insurance companies make more money when the initial charge is gigantic. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't, there, there's an opportunity for insurance companies to apply a discount 
to a gigantic bill, and then they claim a percentage or a commission on the discount that they achieve. That's called oh, claims. That's okay. called claims claims repricing. Um, so they're selling discounts. You'll hear that also. I knew that they were giving discounts. I didn't realize they make money by giving the, the discount yes. is a thing that they actually sell. And yes, wow, yeah. So <sighs> if you if you think through that, you don't need a degree in mathematics to realize that the higher the initial charge, the more money. Um, that represents that opportunity to reprice the claim, the more money available for the insurance company. So when, wow. we, when we had low prices and high quality, that didn't help them at all. They wanted no part of that. Yeah. The other reason, and right now, this is probably the primary reason, when, when a big insurance carrier goes to one of the big hospital systems um, and they start negotiating and you know just kicking the ball back and forth, you know, what, you know, what kind of discount are you going to give me and what are you going to pay us? And part of the arrangement is, oh, and by the way, here's a list of facilities uh, you cannot include in your network or this deal is off. Now, sometimes it's explicit. Um, I would love to have a copy of that list. I'll never see it. So, so but, just to be clear, is it is it the hospital saying that it's, it's the insurance company saying that this is a list it's no, the hospital. It's the hospital. <gasps> the wow. Basically, they're saying we will give you this deal with some degree of exclusivity. <gasps> okay. And now sometimes it's explicit, but sometimes it's not. Sometimes it takes this form. Um, there is a certain volume of patients we must see or this discount goes on a sliding scale and you don't get as good of a deal. Mm. So at that point, the insurance uh, company, uh, the carrier is incentivized to exclude uh, someone like me. So they make a lot of money repricing the claims and they also place their profit at risk uh, by including me for failure to meet these volume demands. Right. That's why I call it. That's why I call this a cartel. Yeah, it is it is a cartel? People pay for access to these networks, um, and it's a disaster. And of course, it's all downstream of favors sold in Washington D.C. You know, it always comes mm-hmm. back to the state. And I always have to remind people, you know, you can bash the insurance companies and the hospitals and big pharma and. Bash them all, all you want, but remember the state ultimately is at the heart of all of these shenanigans. Uncle Sam's always driving the getaway car. Uh, because <laughs> this, all of these favors have been auctioned in D.C. Yeah, well, certainly the the right to be an insurance company, the right to operate, and even the 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 right or the licensure to be a hospital; those are all things controlled by the state. Um, well, in 1971, the HMO Act was uh, was shoved through during the Nixon administration, and that led to the PPOs. And now there are all these three-letter organizations, and they're all the same. You know, if they have three letters in healthcare, they're pretty much all the same. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, then you have these networks, and then people can be excluded from the networks. People have to pay to gain access to the network. And so much for the indemnity plan where, 
you know, prior to all of this mess, you know, you have a carpal tunnel issue and it needs surgery. You need to have surgery. And the insurance company says, well, we're, uh, we're going to pay you $3,700 and you go buy it. You go buy it wherever you want, but here's $3,700. And those indemnity plans were very competitive and very popular. And of course they're all gone now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and the other thing that's that's been happening for, for decades now um, is it seems it's really squeezing out independent practitioners. So, and this, this, what you just told me is, is one of the reasons why I think there are probably other reasons, but we, especially after Obamacare passed, we heard so much and even, you know, years before this, but I remember after Obamacare passed from some of the independent practitioners we went to, they said that, for example, their, their administrative burden doubled. You know, they were now spending twice as much time filling out paperwork and all that stuff. Right. Um, you guys, So here's another question I have for you is you guys don't have that huge administrative staff that's now why is that? Why not? Well, we, we don't have an administrator. You're looking at him. Um, <laughs> I mean, Dr. Lonte and I, uh, we founded the facility and we run it. Um, the short answer is we don't need them. I, I, I don't understand um, why so many are needed. Um, and actually, the federal government subsidizes huge administrative staffs uh, because their salaries can all be claimed uh, on the Medicare cost reports. Uh, that oh, the really? File, yeah, that form the basis of a kickback they receive later. Interesting. So okay. you know, the federal government, you know, they're, they're behind all of this stuff. We, we don't have a big administrative staff really because we don't need it. Um, the other reason is, you know, we we don't have electronic medical records. We don't file insurance claims. I mean, I don't have an army of staff filing insurance claims and chasing patients around the kitchen island trying to get a copay from them. We just don't do that. Um, we've we've identified all of these awful things that require a gigantic staff as as leverage. Um, that we've deliberately attempted to avoid. And we didn't know anything when we started this surgery center in 97. We, we knew, you know, what we didn't like and we knew what we did like, uh, but we learned some things the hard way. Uh, we, we learned that we, we had embraced some things early on that created leverage like filing insurance claims. So we just decided, you know, after we posted the prices online, we weren't going to do that anymore. So one thing about the electronic records, that, that seems very counterintuitive. It seems to me that having electronic medical records would create more efficiency and lower costs. <laughs> not at all, right? No, no, not at all. Um, you know, if how would you like to sell something, the purchase of which was mandatory? Do you think you'd make money? You know, if there were a market, if there truly were a market, for electronic medical records, then all of these federal subsidies would not be needed to flog hospitals and physicians to buy these things. Uh, And and there is a market for electronic medical records of some kind. I have friends who are ophthalmologists who specialize in retina uh, type procedures in medicine, and they follow the the progress or the deterioration of uh, people's 
eye function and they take pictures of the retina. And it's nice to have that picture compared to last year's, compared to last year's in the medical record. There is no, there is no doubt there is a market of some kind for uh, putting some part anyway of electronic uh, of, of records in an electronic format. But what the government did was um, do what they always do. They, they auctioned off uh, the opportunity to flog everyone with a mandated product and the people with the big money bellied up to the bar. And there you know, are only like three or four companies now and they all make a whole bunch of money and everybody has to buy their garbage, whether it's any good or not. Right. Uh, not like this garbage. You can go to this other garbage. Um, but these um, these systems these systems are also an issue because once you put a patient's information in a digital format, it's more easily stolen. Yeah. So we feel like paper records are more secure. Someone would have to actually break physically break into the Surgery Center of Oklahoma to find patient records. Um, and uh, we there's a hospital in Oklahoma recently that. Um, it had their electronic medical records hacked and the hackers told them, you give us a million dollars and you can have them back. If you don't, then everybody, everybody's going to see these medical records. And they called the FBI and the FBI said, pay him a million dollars. Wow. Yeah. So what are we we, paying the FBI for then? Yeah. So another reason to, you know, to not, not have those records. Yeah. So when you guys first got started, the regulatory landscape has changed since you said 1997 is when you you launched. Uh-huh. Um, how would you say? Well, first of all, what were the regulatory burdens that someone would have would have faced back then? But I in starting up their own hospital. But if if I wanted to start a hospital now, if I wanted to just go out there and start my own hospital. What would be the biggest regulatory burdens I would be facing? And let's say I wanted to do it like you guys did. Let's say I don't I don't want to deal with insurance. I don't want any ties to the federal government. I don't even want any ties to my state government. I want to be as independent as possible. What would be the biggest burdens or biggest barriers? Um, the biggest barriers are the state, um, either at the state level or the federal level. Um, you first have to have a license. Um, in some states, there are laws that are referred to as certificate of need laws. Right. Um, John Stossel calls these con laws for <laughs> CON. I like that. Yeah, it's appropriate. Um, yeah. So that means you appear before a star chamber of your future competitors um, who get to decide whether you get to go into business or not. And as you can imagine, the answer is invariably no. Um, I believe there are 30 or 32 states that still have these certificate of need laws. That, of course, was started by the federal government, and it applied to all 50 states. Uh, And once they had generated all the carnage uh, that they felt like they needed to generate, they stepped back and said, well, if if you want to repeal these, you as individual states, you can. And, and then it was an uphill battle, but many states did, but most states still have some version of these certificate of need laws and regulations, or as Per Byland calls regulations, choice restrictions. I, I like that better. 
Yeah. Well, um, and they end up being <laughs> supply restrictions too. I mean, um, right. you know, I don't, um, from, from what I've seen just like in the past 10 years or so, I think it's like over, over a hundred rural hospitals have closed for good right. in, in this country. Um, do you see, do you see there becoming more and more of a shortage of hospitals or of, or of medical care generally? Oh, oh yeah. Um, consolidation of any industry um, is what Jim Epstein, who did the Reason documentary on our facility, that's what he told me was the smoking gun for a great story. Hmm. Um, because that's not the natural order of things. The natural order of things is to have more competitors enter the marketplace um, and to have more and more competition and to see quality soar and prices fall. Whenever you see consolidation, then, you know, the ugly hand of the government uh, somewhere is behind that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that. That's what Obamacare did. Uh, Obamacare uh, was one in a series of federal actions that spelled the death uh, for many of these smaller hospitals. So um, Medicare pays doctors who are hospital employees twice what Medicare pays doctors who are not hospital employees. Mm. So um, physicians uh, in small towns were faced with these electronic medical record mandates. They were faced with a new uh, set of codes, the ICD-10 coding regime, uh, which was incomprehensible. And so they had to have a staff uh, to deal with the records, to deal with their codes, to deal with everything. And so that pushed a lot of physicians into the arms of these hospitals that wanted to hire them. Well, the big city hospitals would hire the small town docs and tell them, now do you need to direct all of your referrals to the mm-hmm. mothership And then that choked off all the business for the smaller rural hospitals. And presto, you know, they're they're now suffering and they either close or the big Death Star hospital comes in and makes them an offer they can't refuse. Right. And so you see this uh, consolidation of the industry. And and that's that's ultimately what was behind it. My solution for rural health care is to allow the doctors to own the hospitals. Um, In the old days, the doctors owned all the hospitals in the small towns. Uh, But of course, um, when Obamacare uh, was being considered, the American Hospital Association held their support until they achieved what they really wanted, and that was a ban on physician-owned hospitals. And the way they, once they received that assurance, then the American Hospital Association uh, backed um, Obamacare. The way they implemented that was the way the government always does things with a hammer. Um, if you want to open a hospital, you go right ahead, but you cannot accept Medicare or Medicaid funds. So most hospitals, uh, in fact, all hospitals have to have an emergency room. Mm-hmm. And so that would mean all Medicare and all Medicaid patients that patronize that facility, um, <clears throat> I mean, there would be no reimbursement whatsoever, none possible. So right. physician-owned facilities, uh, after Obamacare was passed, they cannot, you can't open a new one 
uh, and receive any federal money. That so so that you can oh it's it's not illegal to open mm-hmm. one. Right, you're just cut off from federal reimbursement. <clears throat> that's right. And okay. so well, that's better news than I thought you were going to. Well, but you have to remember, fifty percent of all of the medical bills in the United States are paid by government, whether it's yeah. the VA, Tricare, Medicare, Medicaid, Indian Health, fifty percent. So, if you're an entrepreneur and you realize, okay, fifty percent of the population cannot set foot in this medical business I would like to open, then that means your risk, you know, your risk stratif- stratification is is more difficult. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we opened, uh, when we opened, we filed insurance claims and that's how we got our feet on the ground. But the moment that we could stop, uh, we did. We never took a dime of money from the government. We knew that was a bad idea. Yeah. Uh, so to open a facility and never take a dime from insurance, that would be, that would be pretty tough. It would take some pretty patient um, capital partners uh, to weather that. <laughs> yeah. Now, what about some of these new models of insurance? I don't, I don't actually don't know how new they are. Some of them are based <clears throat> on old mutual aid um, models, yeah. but what about some of those? I mean, there are, there are things like these, these plans, the membership plans and um, that are outside of the insurance industry. Do you see, are you, are you optimistic about those? Oh yeah, I belong to one. Okay, and and I recommend uh, that everyone fire their insurance, even if your employer provides insurance. You should fire it, fire them. Uh, you'll get a bigger paycheck, uh, and then join one of the um, one of the sharing co-ops or ministries. Yeah. Uh, there are many of them. Um, there's one called Sedera, uh, run by the Hero. Uh, an ex-physician from uh, Great Britain, Tony Dale. Um, there's uh, Christian Healthcare Ministries, Samaritan Ministries, Liberty HealthShare, mm-hmm. uh, MediShare, uh, Solidarity Share. Uh, there are several of them, and I encourage people. Um, I encourage people to go that route. You'll wind up spending less money um, and having a a better safety net uh, if something awful should go wrong. Um, The best way to go down that path is to also consider um, a membership in a direct primary care practice. Mm -hmm. DPC or direct primary care is all the rage now. Uh, It's probably the most rapidly growing part of what I call the free market revolution in this industry. Um, People can look at a, look at the website DPC frontier and it's a map of the United States and it shows in a pretty updated way, um, all of the direct primary care doctors in the United States Nice. So you can nice. look at where where do I live, you know, and where's the closest one, and you pay them seventy or eighty dollars a month, and you have unlimited access to the doctor. So it's nice. it's concierge care um, at really blue collar kind of pricing. It's wonderful. Yeah, yeah, and that's <laughs> that is sort of getting back to the old mutual aid styles, where you know if you were a member of a lodge or or some mutual aid society. They would right. often they had these lodge doctors, which of course the AMA hated and cracked down on. But it's right. it's nice to see that coming back. 
Um, so you said that all hospitals have to have an emergency room services. So does that mean that you guys have you guys have emergency services? Well, we're an ambulatory surgery center. Uh, I'm an outpatient surgery center, so we we are not oh, required by the okay. state to have an ER. So we we do not have an ER. And and before any of your audience falls for the lie that the emergency rooms are what are bankrupting these hospitals because they have to take all comers, understand that probably the second fastest growing part of this free market revolution in the country is freestanding emergency rooms. Hmm. So many of these facilities are opening in spite of the fact that laws prevent them from accepting federal money. So these, the folks that are behind these facilities are taking great risks uh, to open freestanding emergency rooms. Here in Oklahoma, we have the OKER and hospital. They actually have a hospital where they can admit patients that come into the ER uh, for an unlimited time, just like a hospital. Oh, wow. They have taken significant risk, uh, financial risk in opening this facility um, <clears throat> because they can't accept federal money because it's right. post Unaffordable Care Act. So um, that wow. those growing, we're seeing more and more of those. Uh, and that is a very positive uh, development because people don't have yeah. to go, people don't have to go to the Death Star Hospital to go to the emergency room. Right. That's amazing. Um, I would love to have someone on the show to talk about that sometime. Um, yeah, I'm really curious how they, how, so if they're not able to take, to accept Medicare and Medicaid, how do they manage that? How do they, they've got, they've got their costs cut down and they're just very aware of what things cost. They provide great, fast service. Uh, the one here in Oklahoma City, <clears throat> uh, the chief ER doctor told me his goal is to uh, enter the waiting room prior to the patient filling out their paperwork, telling them to come with me, you can finish that back here. So, you know. That doesn't happen in a lot of ER waiting rooms. Uh, no, yeah. and I've been a patient there and it it's, it was wonderful. Wow, that's incredible. That's, um, yeah, I might have to get, get some of their names from you okay, later to. on. Um, that's, that's really incredible. Um, so, one a big question I have for you is regarding regarding this past year and what's happened to healthcare and what's happened with hospitals and in particular this the the demand from the federal government that or I should ask you actually where that demand actually came from that non-COVID conditions either not be treated or be relegated to a second tier and just the the scuttling of a lot of what the state decided were non-essential treatments, including things like cancer and, you know, serious life-threatening conditions. Um, did that, did, did those edicts affect you guys? Yes. Um, <clears throat> the decision to suspend elective surgeries was a recommendation that not all states followed. Um, Oklahoma is fortunate to have um, a governor who listens. He unfortunately listened to the wrong people at first, but he has libertarian tendencies. 
And when he realized he was wrong, he reversed his decision. So Oklahoma suspending elective cases was a very short duration. So it did did affect us for a very short time. Um, However, if, if a patient called us and said, you know, I have a breast mass and a really bad family history, we considered her condition urgent. And so we... We performed surgeries on people like that. We had folks from surrounding states. And, and because our prices are online, we've taken care of patients from all 50 states and many foreign countries now. But there were states that were, that were severely locked down for elective surgeries for an extended time. Um, yeah. and, and it's a disaster. But a lot of those patients traveled to Oklahoma and they came to see us because we uh, we considered certain conditions urgent that maybe others did not, and we also the the ban on elective surgeries was lifted here in Oklahoma. Fortunately, a little quicker than some of our surrounding states. Okay, but it sounds like the the determination as to what was elective and what was urgent was still in your hands. You you had the um, although maybe right yeah yeah and- because the licensing board can always come in and say. And then question that, right? Is that the the issue? And the the really the governing body, the people with the hammer that would hit us would be um, the state people who uh, hold our license, the um, hospital so, license. Yeah, and um, we it it was left up to us. Uh, Oklahoma um, is is more of a I think a reasonable state when it comes to things like that than many others. Um, and and so we we operated on people with urgent conditions, uh, and everyone did. All the hospitals operated on people with urgent conditions, but we thought if somebody has cancer or there's a really good chance they have cancer, uh, and we can take that out now, and then then it's not life altering for them. We just decided that was an urgent condition on our end, and and perform surgery on those people. Yeah. And just to drive the point home, when you make a decision like that, you're putting yourself at risk. You're putting the hospital at risk because this the licensing entity can come in at any time. I mean, I've, I've had some other people on my show talking about um, what I what I hope is becoming clear to a lot of people outside of our circles, that licensing, the power to license is really the power to control. And if sure. you have to operate with this the, the shadow of this, this thing hanging over you all the time, you know, ready to, you know, to, to cancel your license. If you make a decision, it doesn't agree with, I, I don't see how anyone can think that that's compatible with a free society. What, what do you think? What do you think about, about licensing itself? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not a fan of licensing. Uh, there was a, a previous board at the state health department here in Oklahoma that was weaponized by the hospital board members who were actually on that board. Oh, wow. So they went after, they went after folks and they went after me. Uh, for instance, in uh, 2003, the Oklahoma State Department of Health um, let me know that they were coming to get all of the patient records for patients we'd operated on in the year 2000. And I told them they couldn't have those records because none of the patients consented to the release of that information. 
And they said, we're the state health department. We don't require their consent. And I said, well, they, you know, these patients rely on me to be a good steward of their information. And I don't see how their health as individuals is enhanced by this. So you can't have them. And they said, well, we're the state health department. You don't get to tell us no. And I said, well, the answer is no. And they said, then you're closed. And I said, well, we'll see you in court. Um, so we sued. Wow. And I believe we're the only ones that have ever sued the state health department who were wow. licensed and regulated by them. And in discovery found that they did not have the statutory authority to collect these records. Wow. So I, have, I have their surrender from their general counsel framed on the wall in my office. That's awesome. That's um, awesome. But, the, but the, they were weaponized uh, by the hospital. So you know, whenever you have government get involved in licensing, it's going to get political. I mean, somebody's going to figure out a way to politicize it. Uh, we fortunately um, have a governor now who's cleaned house at that place, and uh, they're uh, much less uh, hostile uh, to the facilities that they regulate uh, and a bit bit more fair-minded. I'm you know, if you're going to be regulated by an outfit, you know, it's it's nice if they're kinder, kinder and gentler. Uh, right. and, I, and I think they are now. Um, but yeah, licensing is, um, you know, it's it certainly doesn't prevent bad facilities or bad doctors from practicing. I mean, we, we know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it seems, and as you say, you know, in cases where it's, it's, you know, weaponized, it's really just a tool for one group of, of, practitioners to get rid of their competition or to, to harm their competition in some way. Sure. Um, so have you seen, are there, are other hospitals following your model or have you seen, are you, are you encouraged? Like how, how many numbers, what are, what are we looking at in terms of how many are doing this? Well, the best way to gauge uh, the growth of this free market movement um, is to look at the number of state chapters that have blossomed from the free market medical association. I would, I would encourage everyone to check out fmma.org, uh, free market medical association. I, I believe there are 27 state chapters now. Uh, in every one of those states, there is a, a facility or more than one facilities that have to some degree, copied what we've done. Uh, nice. Our approach, our approach of taking no insurance and no government money, is radical. Uh, on the radical scale, we're probably setting the bar. Um, some people have hybrid uh, approaches, which I completely understand, uh, just due to their risk tolerance or their right. or the environment uh, where they work. And, you know, if somebody were in New York or New Jersey, I would not expect them to be nearly as radical in their approach as we have been able to be. So um, the Free Market Medical Association is the association that I co-founded with a fellow named Jay Kempton. And um, he's in the industry and he runs a, a third party administrator. So he he basically has the checkbook of companies that are self-funded and pays their medical bills. Uh, and his clients love him and he loves me and his clients love me. And it's this trinity of wonderfulness uh, that everybody gets, you know, more than what they thought they were going to get for less money. And it's a, it's a great situation. So 
um, this this movement is growing. COVID um, and the government's response to it has been a hiccup for sure. Um, the free marketeers out there have a harder time uh, than those who've bellied up to the trough and take the stolen money. Right. Uh, so right. COVID's definitely been a hiccup. But on on the other hand, I just see I see so much more awareness of sort of the depth of the problem. And, you know, maybe, oh, yeah. maybe in the most extreme examples, you know, the things like um, cancer, cancer surgeries being canceled or, or, you know, um, people in, in care homes being forced to take in COVID positive people or, you know, or people not, you know, not being able to have visitors, you know, in, in critical situations. Um I think there's because of all this these sort of horrific things that have happened. I feel like there's more awareness again outside of our circles of just just how bad things are. Do you see that? Oh yeah, and there have been um, you know whatever inefficiencies that are in the system have been exaggerated uh, when you add COVID in. And not, it's not just COVID, it's everyone's reaction to COVID. It's the government's reaction to COVID. Um, and then you also are beginning to see crazy medical bills get a little bit more press. So mm. you know, people that are people that are billed six, eight thousand for a, a COVID test, you know, wow, whatever you think about the test, you know, the, the some of these issues, I think you're right, are getting more press. They're more highlighted. They're more spotlighted. Um, the two uh, people in the United States that deserve a lot of credit for shining a light on this brutal uh, bankrupting of patients is Marty McCary. He's a pancreas surgeon at Hopkins and a, and a scientist and a friend. And um, he has really done heavy lifting to expose uh, balance billing where patients are bankrupted unnecessarily uh, by uh, price gougers. And he's arm in arm uh, with uh, a woman from Boston named Cynthia Fisher. And the two of them, um, two of them have invested their time and their resources and are showing up in courtrooms and and speaking on behalf of defendants uh, in these balance billing uh, issues. So, um, you know, I I think I'm not wearing the tinfoil hat that I was years ago where, you know, I posted prices and everybody thought I was crazy. Um, You know, it's a law now, uh, even though most of the hospitals are not obeying it, that, that it's actually against the law for a hospital to not post their prices. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, you know, there was an executive order from the prior administration that said, you know, you have to show your pricing and you have to show your uh, contracts and your deals with these insurance carriers. And if you don't, then you'll be fined. Well, all these hospitals are just paying the fines. Um, it's cheaper there for them to pay the fines than to actually yeah. but they're the, expose they're what they're doing. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not the weirdo anymore that posts right. prices. They're the weirdos for not doing it. Um, there was actually a story, I believe it was in the Wall Street Journal the other day, where um, a hospital posted their prices to get out of paying the fine, but they had their um, software or their um, website uh, IT guys install code 
that made viewing those prices impossible. So they posted the prices, but they deliberately made them unviewable. <laughs> right. They're posted, but you can't actually see them. That's hilarious. One question, getting back to what we were talking about, about um, taking federal money and, and the, the sort of the, the trap that that becomes. Is it different if you're a religious institution? Does it are there like are there still religious hospitals? Are there still church hospitals? Or has that been done away with with sort of as things have rolled on? Uh, I mean, there are hospitals that claim a religious affiliation, um, but I'll tell you, some of the most abusive uh, price gougers in the United States are not for profit, faith based institutions. Wow. So. Wow. Um, yeah, go figure. But, you know, they, they make a lot of money. In um, a lot of these uh, hospitals were Catholic hospitals where, you know, in the old days when the nuns were in control, they actually acted as a charitable institution, much like uh, how uh, Mayo started out um, and much mm-hmm. how uh, these hospitals set up by mutual aid societies started. Um, mm-hmm. But that's all gone. You know, the, the nuns at most of these hosp- Catholic hospitals are window dressing now, and there are very, very well-dressed, uh, the administrator class uh, that runs these institutions now, and they're very revenue-focused. Uh, hmm. Hmm. One final question. If you could wave a magic wand and fix how healthcare is done in this country, what are the things that you would change? Well, the ironically, the the thing, the source of all of the issues is the state. And so everything that people hate about the delivery of medical services in the United States is the fault of government at all levels. And so the idea that we would throw them the keys and turn the whole mess over to them uh, is not logical uh, because they've created this mess. Um, There are a few things I think that could be done uh, that would help a lot if Medicare would stop uh, paying hospital-employed doctors disproportionately more than independent doctors, then we would see this trend where hospitals are employing doctors come to a screeching halt. Mm. Um, That is really bad when your doctor works for the hospital because then they don't work for you. Um, The the dilemma of what's good for you and what's good for my employer is inevitable. So I would like to see that stop. And I think that would help a lot. Um, I think that um, the ban on Physicians owning hospitals um, is a really bad thing that should be repealed, um, particularly uh, in the rural areas where physicians should own the hospitals. Um, How people can use their money to buy care, it it makes no sense for an employer to buy health care or medical services or medical coverage with pre-tax dollars. When as individuals, we can't do that. So, you know, the government, once again, through the tax code, has discriminated against the individual and empowered and weaponized, really, the big corporations. 
Um, so there, those are some li- some things that might not, maybe they're counterintuitive or wouldn't really occur to people without having been in this industry. There, there are many more, you know, the certificate of need laws should go away. Oh yeah. Obviously. I mean, yeah. that's, that's just an obvious one. Um, I would like to see, um, uh, the opportunity for young people or people of all ages to opt out of Medicare. And I would like to see the opportunity to opt out of Social Security if they wanted to, for that matter. Uh, I I think if young people realized that Medicare is a Ponzi scheme, that all of the benefit that is received by the elderly currently through Medicare is paid for directly by young people. All of the money that the current elderly put into that system is long gone. So every time yeah. every time a Medicare claim is filed, that's like a grandparent swiping their child's credit card every single time. And what I what I would like to see is, you know, let's give let's give young people a taste of uh, capitalism. Let's give them a taste of the free market where they don't have to fund uh, this socialist system that they think might be so wonderful. Let's watch their face and see what happens to their paycheck when they're no longer robbed every month uh, for the benefit of this Ponzi scheme. And, you know, and if there's a shortfall, then maybe the federal government just needs to liquidate some assets like lakeside property and things like that. So, right. that they, you know, buy annuities and get over the hump. Yeah. Uh, yeah. People um, have people. That's not my idea. People have talked about that for years, that we could end these entitlement programs and fill the gap uh, with revenue created by liquidation of um, federal property and federal assets. Right. They, cer- um, they certainly have enough of them. Um yeah, and that yes. way Medicare, you know, could fizzle out and yeah. we could have real free market solutions for uh, care that people need as they age. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. This has been fascinating. Um, really great to have me. you on. Yeah, no, it was great, great to have you on. Um, and anything else that you'd like to add? Um, I, I would like for people to to be optimistic um, and understand that healthcare is actually one of the sources of good news uh, in the United States. This free market revolution is real. Um, I think it's unstoppable. Cheaper and better is really difficult to argue with. Um, This word is getting out. Like I said, not being price transparent makes you a weirdo now. I mean, if you if you don't mm. post your prices, you're the outlier. So things are are going the right direction in spite of all of the efforts of the black hats. And it there's real reason to be optimistic that cheaper and better is ahead uh, in this industry for all of us. I think you're right. I think I think this last year, especially, it, you know, it's it's really brought a lot of these things out into the sunshine for everyone to sort of see what the problem is. And I hope you're right. Um, I do too. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yep.